This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 461. And the quote of the day comes from Rick Rubin, who said, It's a big theme in my life, learning about myself and being a better person. I'm a work in progress. I have revelations every day. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond and beyond and beyond. Hey yo, what's going on? Nick Ruffini here, episode 461, and I am super duper excited about this episode with my man Jimmy Chamberlain. This is actually the second time I've had him on. I had him on episode 248, so that was back in February of 2017, and he and I connected back up to have another conversation, and as Jimmy Chamberlain never does, he did not disappoint on this one. Uh, We talk a lot about the evolution of his playing over the years and specifically most recently working on their new record. They were in the studio with Rick Rubin. Uh, so we talk a lot about that and then, and there's just a lot of key takeaways here about thinking about your career and your playing on a longer arc. We talk about how getting from zero to one, how you can take the skills that you're learning from drums and applying to other things in the world. So there are so many great insights from, I mean, He's Jimmy Chamberlain. Of course, he has some great insights. And I always love his approach because he is one of the most humble dudes out there considering the things that he's accomplished. So I always appreciate him for that. And yeah, I'm just, I'm pumped to have him back. So I'm going to stop talking and we're going to get into it with the one and only Jimmy Chamberlain. Jimmy, welcome back. How are you? Pretty good, yeah. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I just I I just looked at the last time we chatted. It was uh you know, or the the interview came out two years ago, which like time flies very, right. very seems, quickly. Seems like yesterday. It doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so I got we gotta talk about the most important thing that maybe no one has talked maybe you haven't talked about this publicly, but it seems as though you got a new cat, maybe two new cats. Oh, geez. Yeah. 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 (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. We got two new kittens on the 29th. So 10 days deep uh, into the four cat experience in our house. Oh my Uh, God. I have one. I feel like I have nine. They've they've been great. You know, Um, we, uh, we actually did it right this time with the introductions. Um, When we got Willie, of course, you know, Willie from Instagram, Uh, we got (laughs) Willie, we just kind of threw him threw him into the mix with Barnabas, our other Siamese, and it took him about literally about a month and a half just to hash it out. Um, so with the new cats, we just, uh, Merlin and Tamsin uh, are both Oriental short hairs as well. We got them, we put them in my daughter's room. They slept in there for about five days. And what we did was we took the blanket they slept on and then switched it with the other cat's blanket. And we kind of did the switcheroo, the scent switcheroo for five days. And then uh, once they got kind of cool with the scent, we put um, one of our outdoor screens uh, in the door and then let them kind of nose to nose and just hiss at each other through the door. And then about six, seven days in, um, we let the cats in the room that the cats, the little cats were in. And um, it's been great. So they've been playing and running around the house. And if they get lost, the big cats go and find them and bring them back upstairs. And it's been really low impact. Uh, And it's like, I wish I would have done it the first time because the the first time when we got Willie, I was, 
I was like running around. The cats were hissing each other. I had to spray. I was trying to spray pheromones at them. You know, saying right, <laughs> right. It was like uh, it was a it was like a Tom and Jerry with two cats. You know, Tom and Tom. Yes, but yeah, things are good. Thanks for asking. The cats are sure. great. Sure. Next step is to introduce them to the dogs. You know, the dogs are the dogs. You know, it's like that cartoon where the the dogs looking at the cat. The cat just turns into a ham. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just, kind we, of, I just had a run in with my uh, my cat and my buddy's dog, and they were kind of like, look, and they're both like small. It's a small dog and my cat, and they're looking at each other, and I'm like, I think they're going to attack each other. Next day, it's like, wow, and they're just in a ball. And I was like, oh, this isn't good. So that did work out very well. <laughs> One thing we did early on with our cats when we had Barnabas and his old, old brother who passed away, the wizard, was we put, um, we put these uh, shock collars on the dogs and the dogs have electric fences here anyway. So we have an electric right. fence around our yard. So they're familiar with the, the kind of light shock they get. Mm-hmm. So we put remote control shock collars on the dogs and then we set them up because because our, our coon hound, Count Dooku, was trying to eat my cat. So we had to do something. <laughs> so we hooked the shock collar up and then we set the dog up. So the cats would come through the room, and then as soon as he saw the cats, he got a shock. So now, to this <laughs> to this day, still, it's been about eight years. To this day, when he sees the cats, he still thinks the cats are capable of giving administering the shock. So the dogs are totally cool with the cats. They think the cats are like these all powerful beings that can like like command lightning bolts <laughs> at will, right? <laughs> that's. I mean, that's almost. I mean, that's like a. That's like a, a mindset thing because then they used to, they did that with uh with elephants too right when they were oh, small yeah. they would like tie their they would tie their hand their hand down but then after a while like they could pull the stake right out of the ground but they oh, didn't yeah. realize that they could that they could pull the stake out of the ground it's I mean yeah after a while you just put a piece of thread on there and they're good yeah. to go you know? <laughs> so yeah it's just uh just one of the good things about having a larger brain than an animal. Yeah, <laughs> at least at least in some regards. <laughs> at least in some regards. So, everyone, you are tuned into uh, Cat Talk with Jimmy Chamberlain. We're gonna... <laughs> Everybody thought we were going to talk about music and drums, but we just we fooled everyone. <laughs> so, <funny>. um, <laughs> uh, so since the last time that we talked, I guess, um, I, and I'm sure that you you knew more than you were you were letting on, but you were I sort of talking. Do. Right. <laughs> Uh, I will. I will. I'll keep that in mind. Uh, I don't want you to shock me or anything. Um, uh, but you would mention a shock collar right now for those of you who can't see. Yeah. If I ask any questions that you don't want to talk about, you just it's give a me a little shock. shock. <laughs> it's a very, it's just, it's just a very small shock. Don't worry, kids. Um, so, but you would, you would mention, you know, you would, I think you had just started sort of talking to Billy about maybe doing like a show here or there or anything like that. And then, and then what happened was, you know, it obviously turned into a new record and it turned into the new tour and all that kind of stuff. So was that, was that something that was in the works for a while? I'm guessing that what we talked in February of 2017, the record came out in what, in November of 2018. Yeah. So, so I, that would have been pretty right on. I mean, I was pretty much telling you everything that I knew at that point. Um, you know, the, the conversations about um, the recording and the subsequent tour really started to kick off in earnest, like October of 2017 is when it started to get real, um, mm-hmm. at least with like, you know, Bino, our manager calling me, you know, every day trying to get a beat on kind of what is it and what's the destination and 
what Live Nation was talking about doing and, you know, what what James is, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> what James is, uh, you know, appetite for participation was going to look like. Um, so, yeah. And then, you know, with Billy and I, it's always easy. It's just we just call each other up and say, hey, you know, what are you doing? Do you want to go record some music? And then we right. end up in the studio together. So that's that's kind of what that happened. When we, once we realized there was a tour um, and that it was real um, and that it was going to happen and that, you know, everybody uh, was going to participate and there was some alignment as far as the business goes, then, you know, it just got to be, you know, let's get down to business and, and record some new music, uh, which, you know, is always fun. So where did you re- did you record the record here in L.A.? I know that you, I saw that you were here a little yeah. bit. So what we did was we um, last January, I think we started on the 3rd of January. Um, we, we, we locked out the village uh, Studio A um, for, uh, I think, three and a half weeks. So we spent basically the, the, the good, ha- the better, the better part of January writing and demoing at the village. And the idea was we knew Rick Rubin was going to produce the single, right? So the idea mm-hmm. was like, we need a single for the tour. We don't want to go out and tour without any new music. Right. Um, so the idea was, you know, we would get in the studio and try to come up with at least, you know, two to three good ideas with the idea that Rick would pick one, we'd record a single and we'd kind of use it to, you know, be a bit to be a, a marketing for the tour. Um, what ended up happening as always is we ended up recording, I think 16 songs uh, right. over the three week period. Um, you know, all of them kind of in various stages of completion, but we felt like we had kind of eight um that were that were kind of done done. So mm-hmm. we we picked the best eight. We took them out to Rick um, with the idea that he would pick one or two to to be the single for the tour. And of course, Rick came back and he was like, "Well, these are all great. We should just make an album." And and by the way, I want to hear the other eight that you guys <laughs> don't think are good enough. Right. And from what I understand, he has a good he he has a very. Uh, a, a, a good way of, of convincing people, right? Well, I mean, you just don't want to, you just don't want to second guess the Buddha, right? I mean, you're right. like thinking like this guy's got, it's Rick Rubin, right? I love Rick and he's got tons of credibility. And if he says you got eight great songs, he's probably right, you know, and, right. or at least, he, at least he knows more than Billy and I. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what, what started off is like, Hey, I'm going to be home like Feb 10, it got to be like, oh, hey, guess what? We're going to record a record, and uh, I'm going to be in L.A. at Shangri-La for the month of February doing this, <laughs> doing this record, um, which was fine. You know, that my mm-hmm. family was completely prepared to, to kind of bite off this chunk of work. But, um, you know, you just go in with a different mindset. I mean, you go in thinking like, okay, I'm going to cut three drum, tra- drum takes, and then I'm going to be I'm going to be good, right? And then all right. of a sudden, you're like, you've got – eight songs possibly nine that you know you're kind of okay with the drum uh with the architecture and the parts that you've written but it's certainly not um the amount of work that normally goes into uh an effort like that at least for billy and i were used if we're going to record eight songs we generally like to spend quite a bit more time on them right you know with with that i i did feel like that because we were we did have an end date and we had to get things done by a certain time. It did force our hand creatively to make decisions on the fly, which I think ended up sounding more instinctual than they did thought out, which to me Mm -hmm. was really uh, a net positive. So, 
so I think we I think we recorded the drums for the eight songs in three or three days maybe so wow. we we're reeling, reeling them off pretty quick you know and with Rick I mean it's he's not you know I, I'm thinking like you know I'm thinking you know very much on a technical level but also you know feel but Rick is just a vibe guy like he's right. he's like that feels great right, <laughs> okay, right, right. Let's move on move on you know like ah <laughs> Really? Like, You're like, I want to go back and fix it. No, no, no. Yeah. Man. I'm like, there's some things that I want to play differently. No, no, no. It's good. I'm buying it. And, and I think what's interesting about him is that when he hears a song, he identifies what it is about that song that he's interested in. Mm-hmm. And once he gets those things, he doesn't really care. I don't say he doesn't care, but he's, he's not interested in all the stuff that maybe you're interested in. Right. Like, Flamadiddles or <laughs> like, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's not. I thought everyone was into Flamadiddles. Yeah, I mean, come on, I could do. A, you know, he's not into that stuff. In fact, one song we did um, called Travels. Um, I had this kind of tomorrow never knows groove, like a doom got to do got got to got to go And he loved he loved the beat. I, I just played like quarter notes on the bell, the ride cymbal, and played that pattern with my left hand. And I had this whole arrangement for the song and there was fills and there was breaks and all the stuff. And he was like, I, I just want to hear the song with you just playing the groove through the whole thing and not doing any fills. And I'm like, man, that is like, I've never <laughs> done that. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's literally like asking me to tightrope walk or something. Right. But, um, but it ended up being a great, you know, when you have somebody like that in your corner, and, you know, like all great producers, you know, they'll make suggestions to kind of get you out of your box and get you out of your comfort zone and push mm-hmm. you into territory that is alien to you. You know, that I, I'm, I'm old and wise enough to know that when somebody asks me to do something like that, it usually ends up being uh, it ends. It usually culminates in some sort of growth. Right. And I was going to say, what do you think that is? I have a couple questions about this, but one, what do you think that is where, where we may lay down, even if it's like a reference track or something like that. And then we're like, Oh no, well I'm going to go back and, and play the real thing later. And then it works. It, it sounds great for the song, but maybe is it, is it our ego? Is it just us as drummers where we want to play something more intricate to sort of showcase the things that we've been working on? What, what do you think that, what do you think that is? I think there's an emotional consistency to demoing that may get left behind once you come up with it. Once you, once you craft an architecture of a song, I think you tend, to, at least sometimes you do, you tend to lose that emotional um, kind of destination. Right. And that's why mm-hmm. like, we're really careful demoing stuff in the pumpkins. Cause oftentimes more often than not, the demo is what you fall in love with. Right. And then when you finally get the finished track, the parts are all there, but there's something missing. Maybe it's, maybe it's not as relaxed because you know, you're recording or there's something else going on. But, you know, Billy and I had a long conversation about this the other day about what, you know, what makes songs great and what makes songs kind of okay. And maybe some songs that look great on paper are, don't translate as great uh, to the Mm -hmm. listener. And I think a lot of that has to do, you know, with being cognizant of what the emotional destination of the song is versus kind of what the technical destination of the song is. Right. So I think when you're playing intuitively, um, you know, you're, you're really just trying to get a feel across and trying to get, get to a point using, you know, your heart, your limbs and your intuition. Once you write things down and you've got an arrangement, 
then you're then you're trying to create then you're just trying to put together re-put together a jigsaw puzzle right and, a, right and in doing that i think you end up using more brain than you need which is why a lot of great jazz records i mean they just stick with us right i mean you hear right. you hear those takes uh you know the giant stuff sessions or anything like that and there's an emotional connectivity amongst the players and a and a um and a and an emotional emotional destination um that's reached in concert that is more compelling than any type of technical accuracy would, would get you. Right. So, mm-hmm. so I think, you know, for me at 54 now, for me, like <clears throat> being able to be cognizant of what a song is trying to say and the feeling it's trying to get across and for me at least is oftentimes more important than like, am I going to get this, you know, incredibly complex polyrhythm part, right. Um, you <laughs> know, and, what am I going to do? How am I going to hit this crash with my left hand? You know, that type of stuff. I don't know. It has less and less of a place in, in, in where I'm going with music these days. I think, um, you know, for me, even when I write, right, I'm, I'm, I'm in my studio now and you know, Billy and I are going to start just at least sending each other ideas next month um, for what will be the volume two of the shiny, no so bright. Um, but for me, like writing, <clears throat> it's easier for me now if I say like, what's the feeling I want to get? Right. And oftentimes mm-hmm. if I say like, I want to get some, I want to, I want to write something that's mournful, um, that, you know, climaxes in the middle and then reaches some type of celebration at the end. I mean, if you just, if you just kind of put those, those types of things on a whiteboard and then, you know, obviously with years and years of playing, you've got the technical chops to kind of put that stuff out there. Mm-hmm. You end up, you know, then all of a sudden, like, wow, okay, now I'm playing like something in six eight, or I'm playing something in waltz time, and then I can, I can, I can chop one of these bars and go into four four, and like, you know, your your body reciprocates in a way that you it doesn't when you just say like, I want to play something in six eight. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, because yeah, it's like, yeah. I mean, I've done both, right? I've said to Moeller or some of my other contemporaries, like, let's write something in six eight that sounds like Brand X. You know, right. I mean, okay, well, let's, you know, you can do that and we could just go play that live, whatever. But if you say like, I want to play something that gets me this feeling, then at least it forces you uh, to come to terms with kind of what the true destination of art is, right? Beyond mm-hmm. like, I don't want to make music for drummers, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to go to my gig right. and see only drummers at my gig, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which a lot of guys do, but I don't, right? Right, just right. Not, like, I don't think that's you know, I don't know, is the best musician the musician that a bunch of other musicians want to listen to, or is it the musician that everybody wants to listen to? I mean, that's always, you know, the million dollar question. Right, Um, right. But, you know, for me, the emotional, um, the emotional context and content of a song far supersedes, you know, all that other kind of BS that you're putting on it. I mean, if Mm -hmm. you listen to like Stones or whatever, or Violent Femmes, you know, stuff that's got an, an emotion that's you know got a danger to it or it's got a sexiness to it it's not really predicated on technical stuff it's predicated on it may have been four in the morning when they recorded it or it's the rolling stones right who knows what was going on (laughs) i think i think 
you know, that stuff, as we get more and more into kind of, you know, quantization and auto tune and that stuff, are we really losing kind of what's compelling about art, which art should be a reflection of the human condition, which is by no means perfect, right? I mean, the way people walk, the way people talk, I mean, you and I are correcting ourselves, we're we're thinking on the fly and going back and re-saying things. I mean, we're not we're not doing perfect takes of this conversation. Right. And although we may edit it, the bones of the conversation are still there, kind of worse and all. So, you know, what do we lose when we go back and we're playing, you know, to clicks and we're doing all this stuff on grid? For me, you know, the stuff I listen to, like I was just upstairs listening to Passion Dance, like there's a vibe there that you just, you can't get, you can't get if you're thinking too much. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think Rick got you out of that thinking too much, like sort of because you had to sort of make, I don't want to say decisions on the fly, but you were, you sort of had to be okay with what you put out there raw and, and, and just playing with emotion. And he's like, okay, good. Well, let's move on. We're going to the next thing. Do you think it yeah. cut, cut some of that analyzation time out? Yeah. And I like that. I, I think, you know, even when we did the last complex record, uh, the parable, you know, we just, those songs were just done in one and two takes and there's, there's mistakes. I mean, some of the arrangements were, we just saw the arrangements for the first time and we just recorded it and we, we had to be okay with just, you know, walking down the street with holes in our jeans. I mean, that's like, right. you know, that's like, you have to be like, okay in your own skin to do that stuff. But when you, when you, when you chop it right down and you say like, okay, I'm going to distill this, I'm going to distill this art or whatever you're going to call this thing down to its most primal form. You know, it is, it is the accurate um, and fearless uh, representation of how you feel that makes the most compelling art. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think for me, that was, that was a big lesson, not a big lesson that I hadn't learned before, but just a reaffirmation of my, my, my thoughts on that subject via Rick, you know, Mm because Rick was really just about, look, you guys are the smashing pumpkins. People fucking like you. Why are you spending your whole lives trying to be something else? <laughs> right. That's a, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, and sometimes it takes, you know, a world renowned producer or a five year old <laughs> to tell you that shit, but you're like, yeah, duh. I mean, and you look around just, and you're like, we are the smashing pumpkins. <laughs> yeah, Holy right, shit. I yeah. Mean, I forgot about that. <laughs> why am I consistently, constantly running away from this stuff? And why, you know, why can't we just be okay with what we do? And if we want to do other things, then we make a box for that stuff or, or we don't make a box, but, but whatever. I mean, that's just, I think the, the, the message and the lesson is just to be, you know, when, you know, whatever it's, whatever you call it, user testing or consumer mm-hmm. product fit, you know, it's like, right. it's like, People dig it when you make music that sounds like you. And right. oftentimes as artists, we get into this thing where it's like we're changing just for the sake of changing. And I'm not saying that like changing is bad because obviously without change, we wouldn't have fusion. We wouldn't have, you know, Miles Davis on the corner or that type of stuff. So change right. is good, but it has to come from a from a from a point um, of honesty and 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 altruism as far as you know that self-reflection goes it can't be like i'm gonna change because people ain't buying my shit anymore right right (laughs) yeah it's it's funny like as you're saying all this i'm thinking like because you can relate to this on sort of the the tech side of things like the business or you know the the technology and when people are building apps and things like that and they make changes to the app Mm -hmm. and it's and 
uh, you know, it's like, why did we make this change to this app? Well, yeah. because we thought it would be a better feature, better feature. And it's like, did you talk to anyone about this? That's right. Did anyone ask you if this is a good feature to add? Did people not like the app the way that it was? Was there any problems with it? And I, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about it like from a technology standpoint too, where, you know, we make all these changes or people make all these changes to apps and then they find out that no one wanted it. No one was asking for it. So for you, it's like, you know, why would, why make all these changes? Obviously like Rick said it best, but like, why make all, did anyone say, we hate how the Smashing Pumpkins sound. They should really change their shit up, you know? Yeah. They should sound more like, you know, to so-and-so. It's like, <laughs> right. I, I don't know. No, you're you're absolutely right, and it's funny you say that because I I you know I do some tech consulting, and yesterday mm-hmm. I sat uh, through a a three hour product presentation on Go to Meeting, right? And I and if I could count the times I heard the product manager talk about I think this and I think that, right? And I was and I didn't I didn't want to overstep my bounds, but I. I wanted to tell him at some point the same thing I would have told my own employees back at Live One. Like, when you say I think, just tell me I don't know. Okay. Right. Don't yeah. say I think anymore. Just say we don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the <laughs> fuck is going to happen. This thing could <laughs> right. blow up. Right. Because it's like, because <laughs> you're just, you're yeah. just shooting in dark, right? I just, you just don't know. I mean, unless you're out there, you know, user testing or, you know, or the flip side is it, when you say I don't know, Either say, uh, or you say, I think, say, I don't know, or I don't care, right? Right. Because <laughs> that's the other part, which is a great, you know, that's a fun way to create art is not not only do I not know, like, I don't care. I don't right? care what so happens. Now I'm just going to write whatever the hell I want, and I'm just, I'm going to be the only one that ever listens to it, so this is why it's going to be great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Or I'm the only one that needs to use this app, so I don't even need a settings menu. So it doesn't matter. You're right. Maybe I don't know what that is. Maybe we think that, you know, and I'd I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Like, do you think it's just that we constantly think that we have to always like I believe in constantly evolving, obviously. Right. But like, do do we feel like if we're not constantly changing, we're getting stale or that? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a propensity to, you know you know, this constant kind of tweak fest or this like, you got to make things better or blah, blah, blah. But I mean, Hey man, we're still drinking out of cups and we're still eating out of bowls, man. I mean, no, (laughs) you know, I mean, has anybody made a better bowl? I ate out of bowl last night and it's like, (laughs) it worked just fine. You know, I don't need like another lip on it or like some type of, you know, handle or like, (laughs) so I mean, there's a point where, and that's, that's where wisdom comes in, right? I mean, you can have the intelligence to quit smoking, but you're not wise enough to do it, right? It's like, you know, intelligence versus wisdom, like, it's, it's kind of two different things. So, you know, it's, but you get that thing where you like, you're in target and you see like that skateboard that's got like a fifth wheel on it. And you're like, what the the hell is that thing? Right. (laughs) Yeah. I think we should add a fifth wheel to a skateboard. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Yeah. Cause I don't know. Cause I don't have anything to do. Right. If I don't add a fifth wheel, I'm just going to be sitting here, you know, thinking that, you know, my life is over. Um, right. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I think it's human nature at some point to want to kind of, you know, make things better. But I think, you know, that's a reflection of our own uncomfortability and our own lack of perfection, right? I mean, we right. all have to deal with our own inconsistencies on a daily basis, you know, and, and I think, you know, it gets wearying. So anytime we see an opportunity to, you know, be able to revel in, you know, the, the attempt at perfection, I think we, we kind of seize on it. And I think mm-hmm. that's just 
that's just human nature. I mean, I'm sure you, did you read that book copycats? It's a, yeah. it's a great book. Yeah. It was written about 10 years ago, but that was a great book about, you know, business guys who just sat around and waited for somebody to come up with a dumb idea that worked. And then they would just copy it. And, and they obviously had better business chops and better, better investors. So they would just rip the idea off and just remake it. You know, while these, while these other guys would just be stuck in a cave trying to make this thing better. Right. You know, by the time they made it better, it would, the, the other guys would copied the company and sold it already yep yep i mean you see it now even like you know the, the dyson vacuums or whatever and then there's like the shark or whatever. you know it's like oh, the yeah. same it's the same exact vacuum but it has one thing different you know oh yeah believe me man. My, you know, we got like you know we're buying like a hundred dollar HEPA filter vacuum cleaner bags you know it's like <laughs> hey if you got multiple cats right yeah you need this vacuum <laughs> So, it's funny, you know, when you get a new cat, how many pop-up ads you get for vacuum cleaners? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Is that Mark Zuckerberg selling those things or what? <laughs> it's on Meow Book. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I get, and this may be a hard question, but how, how do we become, I hate to say, I hate to say how do we become okay with I don't even want to say that like our own status quo, because I, I don't want to say it like that. But how do how do we get to a point where we're OK with where we're at? Like instead of instead of constantly moving, because I think that like if we constantly move that goalpost, we're never going to be happy. We're never going to be satisfied, whatever. And I, I believe in being happy with where you are, striving for something better. But do you have yeah. advice of like how to be sort of OK with where where things are at now, whether it be your career or your playing or something like that, and still wanting to strive to be better? Well, for me, it's really just about living in present time mm -hmm. um, and, and being okay with the fact that I can't can't change the past and I can't control the future, right? And I can, I can only celebrate this moment, right? So how can I maximize this effort within the context of this moment tends to tends to uh, pave the way for better tomorrows and better futures, right? If I'm making mm -hmm. good decisions now, I know that, that universally things will generally be taken care of. Um, you know, but again, I mean, we need to look around us and see like, I mean, <clears throat> it's it, I, about four times a year, there's a school called the Cove School down the street. And it's 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 for kids on the spectrum, right? It's mm -hmm. spectrum disorder kids. And I'm going to go do the keynote there in a, in, a, in February. But um, I always do like career day because they love to have me there because I take my drums in and bash the hell out of them. And the right. kids go crazy. But, you know, when I do kind of more intimate classes, you know, we, we get these groups of kids that are you know, supremely talented. I mean, beyond anything you can imagine. I mean, each one of these kids in our group will be, one of them will be like speed reading. One will be creating this like pointillistic masterpiece and a sketch pad. The other kid is like doing some crazy math algorithm. I mean, you know, they Insane, all have this right. crazy, crazy talent. And, you know, it makes you think like before we had, you know, a mechanism to put these kids in boxes or labels, how many of our great inventors were just like these kids? How many, yep. how many of these kids are just like Thomas Edison or just like Alexander Graham Bell or just like Einstein, right? You know, before we, before in our infinite wisdom, we started to tell these kids they had something fucking wrong with them, which none right. of them do, of course. Um, <clears throat> you know, they were allowed to create um, and change the world for for the, for all of our benefits. I mean, do you um, think of someone like Einstein or something like how quote unquote, like 
uh, messed up would he have been when he was a kid? He would have been on. They would have tried to put him on all sorts of drugs. They would have had. I mean, my my uh, my nephew is autistic, so I I understand it a lot. But like they, you know, it's like let's just let's put him on drugs, and his brain doesn't work the way that art. And it's like, well, maybe he's a fucking genius, and you know, maybe. Maybe know, we should just maybe. let him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe I mean, we should just let him about, go do what he does. Well, you think about, you know, how we, how we kind of celebrate the dysfunction of our past creators, but we chastise the dysfunction of our future geniuses. Right? Mm. There's something really kind of messed up in that in that in that flow of you know, supposed wisdom, right? especially when you're, when you're, you know, as you know, you spend time with your nephew and I spend time with these kids. So one of my favorite things to do with these kids, um, and I do this a lot at my drum clinics as well is, is, is I say, okay, let's go around. Cause these kids are dealing with the same thing we deal with as musicians. They feel ostracized, right? They feel like they don't fit in. They're trying to change themselves, or maybe they're not, but but people are trying to change them. Um, you know, there's an uncomfortability, and and it gets into this kind of, you know, same thing we suffer as with as musicians when we get into like replication as opposed to creation, right? We get into this kind of mimicry because we're trying to be Steve Gadd versus being you know Nick or Jimmy. You know, the idea with musicians is to celebrate our identity and our individualness, right? And it's, mm-hmm. and it's those that we uh, hold in high esteem are the ones that have taken that celebration to the highest level. The Steve Gads, the Jeff Picaros, I mean, the guys, you know, the, the Keltners, I mean, the, the Buddy Riches, I mean, the guys that were fully developed characters that were able to paint their emotions on the canvas of their drum set with impunity and just do it like, falling off a log. Right. Mm-hmm. And they were, they acted just like they played the drums. Right. I mean, right, right. there's no doubt when you listen to buddy, you know, you know, it's just like <laughs> talking to him, right. Or yeah. listening to him yelling. It's like, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's this, there's this movement to try to disconnect ourselves from who we are. Right. So, so when you go around the room with these kids and you say, okay, let's all name our favorite person. And, it's always fun because la- the last time we did it, I had like Ben Franklin, I got David Bowie, I got, you know, I forget who else, but people like that, iconic people, right? Mm-hmm. Andre the Giant. It's like, right. <laughs> and then you start to say, okay, what if, what if David Bowie was like everybody else? What, what would we have right now, right? Mm-hmm. And these something goes off in these kids' heads when they start to put together like it was the differences in David Bowie that made him special. Right. It wasn't the things that were. It wasn't the. Um, it wasn't the you know things that made him like everybody else that made us wanted to listen to him. It was mm-hmm. the things that separated him from the rest of humanity that made him great. So therefore, you know, how should I feel about myself and my journey? Right. I should be celebrating the inconsistencies and also being okay with the similarities. But as an artist, our job, at least in my opinion, is to celebrate those inconsistencies in a way that's honest and fearless and unashamed. Right. Mm -hmm. And the people that do that at the highest level, we can all recite their names, whether it's, you know, Curtis Mayfield or Marvin Gaye or Elvis Presley. I mean, there's a fearless celebration of the self that goes into that type of high artistry that, 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 uh, 
that goes through every, there's a thread that runs through every one of those people. Mm-hmm. So young people, on the other hand, because there's so much homogeny in the world and there's so much examples of other people doing things in this narcissistic movement on, on online, these outside quantification metrics that kids are, kids are dealing with all the time. You know, the movement is towards homogenization, not individualization. So, right. you know, when you and then when you couple that with, you know, what's going on with big pharma and medication and everything else, what does that do to not only our ability to create, but what does it do to our ability to experience and 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 um, appreciate creation? Right. Right. So. Right. So I think, again, you know, for me, you know, worse than all, going back full circle to your point, like. It's our. It's not only um, incumbent on us um, as artists to be okay with ourselves and kind of celebrate that. It's kind of our job, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if we look at it like my job is to just be me, then I know I don't need a manual. I can just be me, and maybe yeah. being me is not being a successful artist, but or at least in the kind of you know the royal the royal uh, sense, but. It's being a successful artist in the sense that I'm true to myself. So if you're looking to get a new kit, you have two options. One, you can check out some pictures online. You can go to the store. You can see what they have there. You can drive to another store. You can find a couple more models and you can drive yourself insane driving all over the place trying to see what the kit that you want looks like. Or you can design yourself the perfect sonar kit using their SQ2 drum configurator. And this configurator allows you to build a kit from scratch, or you can use some of their predetermined configurations and then just modify them. But you can modify everything, the sizes, the configuration, the hardware, the color, all of that stuff. And you can make it to your exact specifications. Not only that, you can get an overhead view, you can get a 3D image of it. All of that is all built into the drum configurator. To build your dream sonar kit, go to sq 2 dash drumsystem.com or just google sonar sq2 you'll find it check it out the sonar drum configurator i had a conversation yesterday and we were talking about like trying to be like everyone else because it's you know like you go on instagram and you see somebody playing something or you see this and you're like oh shit maybe i should do that thing maybe Maybe people, I'll have more followers if I do that, or maybe people will like my playing more if I do that. But then for me, anyway, when I realized I'll just be myself and like you said, warts and all, what, this is me. And if you like me, you like me. If not, you're not. It's so much easier to be yourself. It's so weird, it's right? So, it's like, oh, I don't have to think about this. There's, I don't have to, nothing's premeditated or I don't have to like conjure up this thing that I'm going to do. I'll just be me and, Man, it's a lot easier. It is, and I and I'm and I'm not, I'm no different. I'm I'm on there looking at all my favorite drummers, Carter McLean, all those guys that I know. I mean, and I'm you know working on stuff that they're doing. And I had I had made a couple of posts about taking some lessons from a couple of different drummers and. I was amazed at how many other drummers reached out to me and said, don't change your style. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guys were instant messaging me going, don't change your style, man. What are you, 
what are you trying to do? Like, where are you trying to get to? You should just keep doing what you're doing. And I was like, man, that's so weird. Like, like even, even me, like, not that I'm some great, you know, drummer or Svengali or whatever, but, but I beg to differ. And I think that the audience would beg to differ as well, well, but whatever, but I don't see myself like that. I see myself as just a musician who practices every day, who tries to get better and tries to do stuff. But I got to keep it in perspective that like, what I'm really trying to do is get what's here in my heart out on the canvas of my drum set, right? And right. when I use other people's, you know, when I use other methods of linguistics to do that or, or languaging, it's not always successful. Um, you know, but that still doesn't stop me from wanting to to learn or be able to play like, you know, David Garibaldi or Tony Williams. I mean, I like to listen to that stuff. And certainly yeah. those guys' is playing is a part of my playing. Um, but... Uh, but I think the, the the lesson here is that, you know, it's like Buddy once said in an interview, look, all musicians are thieves. The best ones are thieves that never get caught, right? <laughs> so so the idea is like, which, you know, goes back to when we used to have to learn stuff on vinyl. You know, when you play, played some type of cadence or pattern, you didn't know if you were doing the sticking right or right. how people were doing it. I mean, I still play the bottom fills wrong. I still play them uh, snare, tom, kick drum, floor tom. Mm-hmm. So just because that's how I heard it, right? And when I saw him do it with it was kick or snare, rat tom, floor tom, bass drum, I had already been playing it wrong for 20 years. Yeah, and you're so like, well, like, this is how I'm just going to play it now. I'm like, well. I'm not going to relearn it. Yeah, so I mean. You know, now that we can go back and I can see, you know, oh, you know, look at this Jojo Mayer stuff or like it's like it becomes replication versus creation. Right. And I think that's that gets to the root of kind of, you know, what what are we doing? What's the journey really about? And, you know, my good friend Billy Ward talks about practicing uh, a lot and last time I talked to him he said you know I was asking him just some questions like how do I be more like you man you know like the, <laughs> right like we all <laughs> and and he would say you know he would do things like go into a studio and he would just drop the drumsticks on the set and whatever those first three notes would be he would create something out of those first three notes and he said it forces so cool. you right his forces you to kind of deal with the universe as opposed mm-hmm. to like, I'm going to go play this pattern and I'm going to work on paradiddles with the kick drum playing the right hand. And like, you know, all that stuff is, a, is, 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 you know, great for technique and great for, for method. Um, but it needs to just be tools and parts of your paintbrush arsenal. Right. right. Um, mm-hmm. Because if we, if we take, if we let, if we leave drummers to their own devices, everybody's going to sound. Everyone's we'll going to sound. Everyone's going to sound like Vinny, right? Right, right. Or at least try like a bastardized version of Vinny. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I'm, I, I'm as I get older, I'm happier and happier and happier to just do my job. Right. Which right. is just to be me, right? I mean, did you ever, aside from like the comments, you know, that people were messaging you and stuff like that, have you ever thought about that? Like, if I evolve too much, maybe I don't sound like Jimmy Chamberlain anymore? No, I don't think that. I think think evolution and replication are two different things, right? And I think, you know, evolution done in an honest way, um, a la like Miles Davis, um, Mm -hmm. is is truly evolution. Um, And I think it becomes a part of you. 
and, and we we've all known guys that have gone off the rails and 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 started to play you know wholly different than they ever played but they generally it's generally just a detour to get them more knowledge so when they come back to playing like the way we love them playing it's better it's a better right. version so mm-hmm. you know i think those i think those types of detours are integral to development and integral to you know us i think I think the main thing to, to be cognizant of is just are we being are we being truthful with ourselves and, and what's the destination here? Is mm-hmm. it to you know, is it to wow our drummer buddies, which is okay. I mean, I like to do stuff, you know, play triplets with my feet and long rolls with my hand. It's like just when Vic right. Salazar comes over, I can do it, you know, and it's like, what the hell is that, right? I mean, that's why, but I know that's why I'm doing it, because when right. Vic comes over, I'm going to blow his mind. He's going to be like, oh, dude, come on, really? Well, what's um, that clip of JoJo when he has, like, the two sticks, and he has, like, one above the symbol and one below, and he's like, I just do this if I need help at, at Sam Ash. And he's right, like, he's like <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, that's, he's like, that's yeah, how so, I get the salesman's, or the salesman's <laughs> attention at Sam Ash. Exactly, right? That's And that's a great tool for that, um, you know, but... <laughs> maybe not much else. Um, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you know, I think if we're okay with being honest with ourselves as far as what the destination is, and we can all be okay with any destination. If the destination is to go play with drums of journey, you know, then, then it should be like, I'm going to take Steve Smith's drum chair and I'm going to practice all journey songs until, you know, well, good luck with that. But anyway, right. you know, you know, that's, it's all okay as long as we're being honest with ourselves and, mm-hmm. and we can look ourselves in the mirror and saying like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bullshitting anybody. I'm not, I'm really trying to become me. Right. Right. It's interesting where you're talking about evolution and like, I look at somebody like Dave Weckl when, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, I, I mean, to me, Dave Weckl was more like a drummer's drummer or like a drummer's musician. Right. Mm-hmm. And I felt like he was a little uh, like I, I can't believe I'm even saying this, but I felt like it was a little like rigid and a little square, right? And like I think you know, and the chops wise, it was insane. But then I saw him two years ago, and he played with this with this jazz uh, band at the Vic Firth party, and he sounded like a completely di- still sounded like Weckle, but like he was playing melodically and like he was playing all, and he sounded like he, he sounded like a freight train. And I was like, Holy shit. Like this doesn't, it sounds like Dave Weckl, but way more evolved and way more musical and way more. And I think I could be wrong about this. And, and I'm sure that someone's going to yell at me. I'm, I think that he was not, like, he was losing some gigs because of how he played before. I could be wrong, but well, you know, and I, I've met Dave a few times and he's, you know, obviously, you know, one of the greatest drummers of all time and, and somebody that I have tremendous respect for. Um, I saw, I saw a clinic that he did in Lebanon about two weeks ago. I was just watching it and Mm -hmm. the emotion in his playing was absolutely stunning. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't know everything Dave ever played on. I'm not, the biggest you know fan of that that stuff i mean it's just it's just not part of my not a big part of my vocabulary i i I love the guy and i certainly respect what he's done and i think he's an incredible drummer but i will say that um i agree with you that you know that is the result 
I will agree with you in the sense that that's the result we're all trying to get better at, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you hear us as young drummers, we're, we sound like young kids that are trying to have a conversation, right? We're trying to sound like adults, blah, blah, blah. But like the emotional connectivity in that guy's playing now is pretty remarkable. I mean, yeah. I heard him doing like some, some literal, you know, some, some, some very, um, kind of middle eastern tinged um cadences and 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 riffing out along those themes and it was literally like so appropriate for the audience and i wasn't in the audience but you could tell that the audience was totally getting into it i mean somebody could have been reading like Upanishads over the top of it and it would have made sense right i mean that's like right that's that's a crazy achievement um mm-hmm. I think, you know, everybody, I think everybody should be trying to get better at emotionally communicating, you know, through the drum set. It's like my mm-hmm. daughter and I, my daughter and I, who's 16, you know, she was, she was playing some pop song last night. I was, I was playing Gino Vanelli and she, she wanted to play, <laughs> right? I was playing like Storm at Sunup and listening to like Graham Lear while I made curry. My my wife was picking my son up and I was like, when my wife's not home, man, it's like, you know, anything can happen. All bets are right? It's like, you know, all of a sudden it's like just the Gemini, Gino Vanelli. <laughs> my daughter's like, what the hell is going on? It's a war suite. What's this war suite? Uh, <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean? This is incredible, right? Uh, so she put on something by Aurora. My daughter loves to sing. So she loves this artist, Aurora, and she put something on by Aurora. And then we play some Panic at the Disco. And, you know, we, we started to get kind of down her rabbit hole, which is good. I mean, she's a mm-hmm. Bowie fan. And I could I can deal with her music more so uh, than than uh, most kids. But, but anyway, she started talking about what she hates about pop music. And, um, you know, and that is my daughter's, you know, my kids are Montessori. They're pretty, you know, they're pretty straight edge. She's right. like, it's always about sex, you know, and it's sex this and sex that. And I said, well, you know, there's pop music that's not about sex. I mean, you look at the Lady Gaga, Joanna record. I mean, there's mm-hmm. some great songs. And if you go back in time, you know, the, the pop music of the day of my generation was really more of a social commentary, right? If you get into like Dylan or Leonard Cohen or anything like that, I mean, very much a social commentary uh, as opposed to sex. I said, but then we got into drums. I said, look, you have to understand, like all music has to be emotional and sex is a powerful emotion. So like if you were sitting in your cave and you heard somebody beating on a drum from a hundred yards away, they wanted one or two things, right? They either wanted food, <laughs> they wanted food or wanted the other thing, right? <laughs> so she started laughing and uh, it, was, it was a pretty funny moment. But but again, going, going back to your point, I mean, that's the point, right? Like we're, we're trying to communicate like emotions through the drum set and those, right. that, uh, those, those that do it the most successfully, you know, seem to have um, the best careers. Like if you listen to like, you know, early stuff with Steve Gadd, I mean, mm-hmm. that stuff is so crazy, good. man. I mean, so it's good. crazy. It, I start sweating when I hear that shit, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, how, how is this so good, man? And, and he was so I, young, too. I know. You know? And how do I suck so bad, man? It's like, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think, you know, Dave and all those guys, I mean, Emotion or not, I mean, those guys, come on, it's the stuff, the stuff they were doing to transform the drum set, to transform what, the way that, at least the way that I heard the possibilities and what, what were possible, mm-hmm. um, you know, certainly, uh, certainly, um, you know, our work, our, 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 our thank you. Sure, sure. And full disclosure for anyone listening before you send me an angry email, this was a positive message about Dave 
about Dave Weckl, not a negative one. I'm saying that I feel like I like the way that his playing has if evolved. You're, if, you're, so, if you're in LA, right? If you hear a Corvette yeah. rumbling outside, maybe you lock your doors. <laughs> He's here. <laughs> Let me in. Yeah. Let me in. Let me in. So I, I, I want to ask you, uh, what's that? <laughs> You don't want to mess with Dave, man. No. I think he's a black, is he a black belt in karate too? <laughs> I don't know. Kidding. He he probably is. Uh, you know, the first person I run into it at Nam is going to be him. Hey, I heard your podcast. I heard you were talking shit. <laughs> I heard you and Jimmy Chamberlain were talking shit. I'm like, no, I wasn't. Uh, no, Dave's super nice, man. Yeah, I mean, I he, know, you man. know. Look, it's 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 no it's no secret that we're all trying for the same thing, right? We're all trying right. for com- emotionally communicative playing. You know, within the context of our ability, um, mm-hmm. you know, and Dave just has more ability than we do. I mean, there's no doubt, man. Way fucking more. Um, yeah. You know, again, I mean, the goal the goal remains the same, right? Whether you're playing two or four, or you're playing, you know, nine eight. I mean, it's like our job remains the same is to make people feel something, and it could. It doesn't matter, you know. Start off by making them feel something. Then mm-hmm. try to get them to feel what you want them to feel, right? right. But even the pumpkins, like back in the day, you know, we hated those shows that were just right down the middle, that were kind of okay. Like we ever wanted to take chances and go down in flames or, right. you know, burn the house down, right? And mm-hmm. and like those, those shows that were on both ends of that scale were the best shows for us. It's like somebody told me that, that Miles Davis said something about like, if I don't hear a guy fucking up, then I, he's not playing to his ability, right? It's not right. like I hear guys going for shit. Yeah, play, <clears throat> rather than playing safe and just laying down, and you know, here's here. This is in my this is in my comfort zone. Let me. I'm not going to stretch or try anything or, or push sure. the boundaries at all. And I could do both some nights. I could be playing in my comfort zone and still fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> That's more my mo. <laughs> I'm more like a two and like four and a half kind of guy <laughs> just where it falls <laughs> um i, I want to ask you about uh, and i know you and i touched about touched on it um in the last interview and you and i have had other conversations about it about how you sort of play in two different worlds where you know you're the drummer for smashing pumpkins but then you also do this all the technology stuff and and business stuff and the the reason i want to talk uh, talk about this the one i had a conversation yesterday and and we were sort of talking about how we can be drummers and be interested and do other things without people looking at them, without looking people looking at us. No one's going to look at you this way, but maybe someone like me or someone else where they say, oh, they're a drummer and whatever, they're, they sell real estate. It, well, yeah, that, <laughs> that's me. But, uh, you know, they, they're a drummer that's and they, they, right. <laughs> Like they sell, you know, they're a drummer and they sell real estate or they're a drummer and they, and they're involved in technology or they do this other thing and they're a priest and, and sort of getting, getting pigeonholed in one, in like one side or the other where, where they won't be taken seriously because they have this other interest as well. And that's kind of crazy, right? When you think, when you think that like, like when I was trying to be a drummer, people were like, come on, man, when are you going to get a real job? And then right. when you want to, then when you are a drummer and you try to do something else, they're like, we're well, just a drummer. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Or it's like, oh, what, well, you know, like, 
no one, obviously no one would say this about you, but a lot of people who are, who have successful music careers, if they go and do something else, it's like, oh, you couldn't make it as a drummer. It's like, no, no, oh, I yeah. still, I still do that thing too. And I feel like there's this weird, there's this weird stigma that if you do something else, then you're you either can't make it as a drummer or you know you're not making enough money or it's it's you couldn't hack it or whatever it is um you well, know again, not all of, not all of us are like the ceo of companies and the drummer in smashing pumpkins so that's you know i mean for me it was really like and again i think this goes back to the lesson we were talking about earlier where you've got to be okay within your own skin. Right. And I think as soon as with anything, as soon as you get into like, what will people think? Or I've got to, I've got to, you know, placate this outside measurement mechanism that I'm not even wholly aware of, um, in order to do this other thing that I'm interested in. I think you've already kind of lost the battle. Right. And I think for me, it wasn't, I didn't, I enjoyed, um, and I won't lie, I enjoyed and I enjoy setting myself apart from being a drummer, right? And and mostly because I've seen people um, have experiences where I know they had other interests and I know they could play differently, but because of their because of the way they paid their bills, they were kind of pigeonholed into this kind of one existence, right? Right. Or like don't, you know, come on, we all know you're just a drummer for so-and-so. And and when are you going to stop pretending and go back to work? Right? Like I heard a lot of that stuff, but being okay with myself and, 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 and being fearless and going into those other verticals, like, like you're right. When I, when I joined live one, I didn't know, I didn't know a cap table from a, from a coffee table. Right. I mean, (laughs) I mean, and I'm guessing were they, they were like, Oh, drummer boy wants to work in tech. Was it sort of that? No, no, it wasn't for me. For me, I just started going to um, like meetings with a lot of tech people in Chicago um, that I got introduced to uh, by this uh, one friend of mine. And as I started to talk about um, as I started to listen to them talk about UX and UI and technology systems, it just sounded very musical to me. Um, it just sounded like they were talking about writing songs. <laughs> um, right. And once I started to put two and two together, it was that group of people that said, look, you've got an interesting viewpoint and you're smart. Um, you know, we want to introduce you to a few more people. And it was just, it just kind of steamrolled from there. Right. And when I got, when I got the gig at live one, I was simply a shareholder and a, and an advisor. And Mm -hmm. I was actively helping the company try to find a CEO when the board of directors came to me and said, look, and we had a guy picked out. It was a former Google tech, uh, Google Mm -hmm. executive would have been a perfect (coughs) CEO. Um, They came to me and said, we want you to be the CEO because we feel like you have a a completely different view of this thing and and something that's completely outside of the box and is exactly what the technology needs. Right. Right. This ain't a paint by numbers business. This ain't something that's ever been done before. So we need somebody who knows how to improvise, Mm -hmm. you know, to be able to kind of pull this off. Um, So again, you know, I, I, I would encourage anybody who's, who's, looking at uh, business or anything else or teaching it's it's easy to look at like why you can't do stuff right we do that all day long i look at a building i know i can't climb building i'm gonna break my neck i I can't get that bird out of the tree i'm gonna fall you know there's lots of instances where we look at stuff and we know we can't do it 
But we need to get away from doing that when there are things that we can do. Maybe they're not, um, maybe they're not uh, in our sweet spot. Mm-hmm. But you know, having lived for many years on this planet, I'm pretty much convinced that anything uh, is attainable within reason by any human being at all, and it doesn't matter. And nothing else matters other than that law. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you, once you get into why you can't do it or the fear or what are people going to say you've already lost right because even mm-hmm. when you do achieve it you're still not going to believe it right somebody's right. going to be able to convince you that you got lucky you tripped into can, it something yeah, yeah right and i can tell you and anybody can tell you dave weckel can tell you and anybody can tell you that nobody is where they're at by accident I don't care. You can bag on, you know, who you think is the shittiest drummer in the world who got the greatest gig in the world. It's like that guy or that girl did something somewhere along the way to get them that job and you didn't do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, and that's, you know, that's between them and God, the universe, whatever. But I, I don't fish a big believer in the fact that nothing really happens by accident. And I don't mean that in like a metaphysical, spiritual way, but I mean, there's things that are people are doing when you're not looking that are getting in that gig. Right. And right. They're, they're putting their lives together in a way that's rooted in passion mm-hmm. and compassion. Um, and I think those are the things that really move the needle. Like for right. me, I knew, I knew jack shit about tech companies or anything else but what I did know was how to get up in the morning and work my ass off because I've been playing drums my whole life. And I know how to work in long, long arcs. I know when I start to do something, it could take nine months to learn how to do it. But I'm OK yeah. with that because I'm a drummer. Right. That's a big net positive in technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a lot of in a point and click world where people are used to like immediate results. It's like that's not necessarily a strong suit when you're dealing with, you know, um, when you're dealing with you know, platforms and and trying to build things and trying to user test and trying to make sure things work and systems that have to operate properly. You know, so I, I'd say, you know, let's look at the things that define us and separate us from people uh, as a net positive and not the things that are going to keep us from getting those roles. I mean, I, I honestly think that drummers or any musician who's, you know, dealing with complex uh, algorithms and complex patterns and complex harmonic structure, their brains are much better suited for the, the technical world that we're navigating right now. Mm-hmm. And especially, especially when you get into UX, UI, and you start to say, like, like to your point about technology, when you get an update on some app and all of a sudden, like, oh, man, this sucks now. Now, like, like, like Google mail, right. Or whatever. Right. Like all of a sudden it's going top to bottom versus bottom to top because somebody had to change something. And you're like, right. Oh my God, this is like, <laughs> this is like, this is just fuck my whole world up. Like right. I can't even look at my computer for three days. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> you know, that's those types of things aren't necessarily the best way forward. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, having an idea of what it takes, like I'm investing in something that's going to take a lifetime to maybe not even ever get. Right. Therefore, I'm positioned well to do X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think musicians really sell themselves short when it comes to, you know, what their capabilities are. But, you know, look, I got an argument. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story, right? I was at a bar one time, and I was, this is like 1992. Imagine this, me at a bar in 1992, right? <laughs> right. So, <laughs> um, so I'm in a bar. 
and there's, you know, girls, whatever. I'm in Atlanta. Right. And, right. I, and I was with Mike Mills uh, from R.E.M. Uh, are, are you on tour or just hanging? No, we're hanging. Mike played yeah. piano on Siamese Dream. I don't know if you know yeah. that. but, but so uh, I didn't cool. know that, actually. Yeah, he plays the piano on uh, Mayonnaise and Soma. Um, but so we're out, and this guy, like, this, this guy is, like, a super rich, and I had no money at the time, right? This guy is right. super rich Ferrari neurosurgeon, right? Mm-hmm. And he's starting to talk, like, He's starting to talk shit about me and me being a musician. And I told him, I said, look, I, I went to Catholic school, man. I'm, I'm smart. I got right. good grades. I said, I can go read a bunch of books and do what you do. Right. Right. <laughs> I, I can, I, I can quit my gig right now. I could go find a way to go to college. And as long as I read the same books as you and get the same grades, I'm going to be a we'll neurosurgeon. the same thing. It's like, uh, I, it's, I like, and I'm uh, got a, Goodwill uh, Hunting, right? Have you see Goodwill Hunting? <laughs> oh yeah. What he's Same like? Thing, right? <laughs> he's like, I, you know, you spent one hundred fifty thousand dollars on this education that you could have, you could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges at the public library. <laughs> All right, right go exactly. ahead. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> yes. So here I am with my black leather jacket and my red bullet, you know, and I'm telling <laughs> this guy like, <laughs> but it's, uh, I said, there's no way you'll ever be able to do what I do. <laughs> yeah, and he's probably there's like, no shit, this gonna- guy's right. You're never going to play Geek USA, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the funny thing is he's probably like, you know, at one of your shows or something and has no idea. He doesn't even care. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But still, you know, it's like, hey, I won the I felt like I won the argument. (laughs) Yeah, I think so, too. (laughs) But, you know, but there's I mean, look, um, you know, what we do as musicians, as artists, those of us who make a living at it. Um, you know, it's a hard gig. It's not mm-hmm. easy. Uh, it mm-hmm. doesn't have an off switch. Um, right. You know, you're always, you're always working. Um, and you do it, you know, because it's like my dad used to say, you can't help being an artist. It's like having a disease. <laughs> you, you got, you got to do it. Thanks know? dad. <laughs> well, my dad was a musician in his own right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but but, you know, people would always people sometimes would say to me, like, oh, you guys, you know, you got so lucky and you're so famous. And what do you what would you be doing if you weren't playing, you know, the 20,000 people tonight? And I always tell them, like, I'd be playing some dump for free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, I mean, I didn't get into drumming because of economics. I mean, <laughs> I don't on, think anyone crazy. does, do they? <laughs> Are you crazy? I mean, I. And look, if I would have told my dad, like, look, he's like, what are you going to do with your life? Like, look, man, I want to make a lot of money, dad. Therefore, I'm going to be a drummer. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's yeah. like Carter McClain. He, he was like, he quit playing drums and he was like, I'm going to be a professional photographer. I'm like, if there's another way to not make a lot of money, it's to be a photographer. <laughs> I'm right? like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> oh, my God. He was at my gig at Madison Square Garden and I... I'm just such a huge fan of his playing. I mean, I just, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's me. I don't know. But I just think like that guy, that guy's got something special. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally I mean, agree, the man. The way he plays, it just so connects with me. And and he was like, I can't, you're Jimmy Chamberlain, man. I can't believe you reached out to me on Instagram. As I reached out to him on Instagram and I'm like, dude, you should come to the show. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, come, <laughs> nice. on, come on, come on, come on. I mean, I know, like Nate Wood was coming, a bunch of people were coming, and um, I was just like, man, 
you're a great drummer. I mean, yeah, I want to hang out and just get a vibe. Like, mm-hmm. why does it have to be something else? Right. 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 It doesn't have to be some, some member of the club or, I mean, I follow a lot of guys on Instagram that like, like when I played San Francisco, I like Scotty Amendola came out mm-hmm. and you know, I'm a huge fan, huge fan of his. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, these guys are like, man, it's so random that you're, you like what I do. And I'm like, I'm a drummer, man. I'm I'm in the I'm in the shit, man. I'm, I got my eyes open, man. I'm looking I'm looking for the right the right stuff that's going to at least give me a little bit of information. Yeah, for sure. Um, there are two things I want, and I don't want to I don't want to keep you forever. Um, there are two things I wanted to ask you about when we were we were talking about um, sort of like the 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 idea that that you can learn anything that you believe that, that if there's something that you want to figure out that you can learn. And I, I think there, I don't think there's much difference between being an entrepreneur than being a musician, right? You have an idea and you want to take it from zero and you want to get it to one. So whether it be a song, whether it be, you know, something behind the kit, whether it be getting a project or, you know, an app to launch or whatever it is. Um, and that the mindset of that is always something that that blows me away. Did you ever hear the book uh, Mindset by by uh, Carolyn Dweck? It's basically the i it's it's just called mindset. It's the idea of a of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. So you can either say this is where I'm at, this is you know this is where this is sort of the the upper tier of of the things that I can do, or I can learn. And I love the idea of you know if, if there's something that I that I want to that I want to do. It's, I just don't have the knowledge to do it right now. So I have to, I, I can, but I can learn it. So what is, what is your advice for someone who want say tomorrow, they want to do something different, right? They want to go into, I don't know, technology or they, or, or they want to go into something else tomorrow. You make that decision today. What do you do tomorrow morning? I think the hardest part is going from zero to one. So like, what do you do tomorrow morning when you wake up? I start looking on Audible and Amazon for books related to the subject, right? And then mm-hmm. I read those books and I find guys that are aligned with the feeling that I get when I think about that particular subject. And I start to dig into, you know, what their methodology is. And 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 and, and in my most unabashedly, uh, most unabashedness, I try to get in touch with those people. Like, mm-hmm. like when I was at Live One. <clears throat> I was, and because I was in the pumpkins, it was easy for me to talk to tech leaders. So, you know, I knew like Gary Briggs, the CMO at Facebook. I knew like all the Twitter guys, you know, Mm -hmm. they were always coming to the pumpkin show. So, but I never felt bad about reaching those guys, reaching out to those guys. They loved teaching and they loved the fact that I was like a little schoolboy calling (laughs) them up and asking them like, what's the ARPU of Twitter this week? Like what? (laughs) Right. (laughs) What's what is an ARPU? They're like what ARPU? I mean, average <laughs> average revenue per user, right? Um, you know, I and and see see where your passion takes you. I mean, for me, for me, the most powerful thing uh, in the world is the written word. Um, for me, reading is something that I'm always doing. Mm-hmm. 
I'm always interested in learning. Um, I'm actually doing an interview uh, on NPR uh, in the next couple of weeks about bird watching because my because we live in the forest and yeah, my yeah, kids yeah. and I have been doing this thing called Project Feeder Watch for over the years, you know, off and mm-hmm. on. And we've got a pretty good uh, roster of migratory birds that come through our feeders. So I've got a I'm doing a full full on interview, not on music, just on ornithology and bird watching. It's, I mean, that's that's you know, awesome. That's, that's the type of shit that really gets me going, man. I'm like, wow, okay. Now I'm starting to really fully develop as a, as a character. Mm-hmm. If I can do like Nick <laughs> show and then I'm gone to bird watching and then maybe, you know, tech crunch or whatever. But, um, you know, I think that's what I do. I mean, I, cause sometimes I'll get an idea about anything and through the discovery process, find that like, that's not really that's not really what I thought it was, or that's not really what I was thinking that I was going to get from going down this road. And in doing that, you kind of find things that are kind of more um, more compliant um, with with what you're trying to do. Um, but again, it all starts with discovery, and then mm-hmm. that leads to passion, and then it leads to knowledge. Yeah. Yep. I mean, with anything, right? I mean, I think you're totally right. We can learn to do anything we want to do. And as I, I, I'm a big believer in meditation and like, uh, and like visual crystallization. And Mm -hmm. I subscribe to the fact that if you can teach your body what it feels like through meditation to have achieved something that you can start to inform the universe as to how things are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And it, and that, that mechanism has been a big part of how I've been able to foment success in my life. I just invest in the feeling of the success having already happened. Right. And I try to get used to feeling like that because mm-hmm. for me, feelings are the most powerful things in the world And when I can harness the power of a feeling, I can go anywhere. Um, When I get into this, like, it's got to be a certain way. It's like, if you would have told me in 2009 when I left the pumpkins that two years later I was going to be the CEO of a tech company, I would have probably called the police, right? (laughs) I mean, mean, there was just – it's just when you limit yourself or you limit your beliefs or you limit what you think can be delivered to you, you're just doing just that, right? You're just Mm -hmm. limiting. And just try – Try to live your life with no limits. Don't get into the how. Just get into the what. Like, yeah. this is what I want to do. The universe will figure out the how. Yeah. If, you, if you get into the what and the why, the how, the how, it's like, well, I never knew I was going to do that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I had no idea the board was going to call me on, on a Sunday afternoon and say, we've decided to make you CEO and pay right. you like a six-figure salary. I was like – what? <laughs> you got the wrong number. Yeah. I mean, yeah. but those, those are the types of things that belief and emotion can really, you know, it can lead to those completely, you know, glorious kind of moments where you're just blindsided by by good stuff. Mm-hmm. What's the, what's the, your visualization process? Do you have like a sort of practice that you do or is it just sort of before you go to bed at night or, you know, you're just sort of thinking of things? I try to isolate myself, um, my body, mind, and spirit in space, um, and I and I <clears throat> I try to just really uh, visualize my body just kind of floating in space. And once once I can quiet things down to to kind of no sound or no uh, no sensory, um, 
then I've always got, you know, the meditative thought, the kernel of the thought in my mind. And then I try to just, then I just try to um, invest in the feelings around that thought. Um, mm-hmm. And if it's like, I want to write a good song, right? I want to write a great song. I want to write a song that changes people's lives. And if you sit there in silence for long enough, you'll start to feel what that's like. Mm-hmm. And the more the more you can carry those feelings around with you, the more you're instructing yourself and your surroundings as to how things are supposed to be. Um, and that's really like there's a there's a couple guys. There's a guy Joe Dispenza who talks a little bit about oh, that. Yeah, wrote, yeah. I just I listened to. Called, Go ahead, yeah, sorry. he wrote a book called um, "How to How to Break the Habit of Being Yourself," mm-hmm. um, which talks about his transformation um, through creative visualization. But did but you download any of any of those uh, meditations from his? I did. Yeah. yeah. So I because one of them's like because you go through like the I guess it's three phases where it becomes an hour long, mm-hmm. an hour long meditation. Yeah, mine are mine are like twenty minutes in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, I mean that's. That's a good place to start um, mm-hmm. for that stuff, but it really, you know, it gets into you. Know, you can reverse engineer um, a lot of people's journey, and and if you get the chance to talk to them and 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 ask them, you know, about turning points and when things started to change for them, it's usually rooted around, or at least if they're if they're aware enough, it's usually rooted around a difference in feeling and how they felt about things, right? Like mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I woke up and I felt like things were different, and I felt like things were moving in a different direction, and things started to really pick up from that point on. Mm-hmm. For me, you know, those things, um, and when I reverse engineer my own life, like I, I, if I can, if I if I sit quietly long enough and get back to the feeling I had when things changed, then I then I can certainly. Um, then I can certainly invest in the concept that it was the feeling that changed those things and not something else. Right. Right. That's, it's interesting that through multiple conversations that I've had, maybe they didn't say it that eloquently, but it's sort of like something shifted or something changed, or there was this thing. I don't know what, maybe, you know, a change in belief or a change in this or a change in that, which, which I think is interesting that, because you know, I think most of the times we just get in our own way. You know, we're we're the ones that are keeping us from achieving the things that we want to achieve. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think you know, we raised in we're raised in a world of doubt and fear, and and told like, if you don't get good grades, you're not going to be successful. Right. And if you don't eat your carrots, you're going to go blind. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. just dumb shit. Right. Yep. It's just not true. I mean. Right. The only thing, the only thing, my brother is a huge Tower of Power fan, right? Mm -hmm. Huge. And he's a great drummer. Great drummer. Really like linear, plays really linear. Taught me some crazy shit over the years. He taught me the the beat to Scatterbrain Mm -hmm. Jeff Beck when I was like nine, right? (laughs) Like. Like, he's like, check this out. I just figured this out. And we, you know, he lived in my house. So, right. you know, that type of stuff. <clears throat> or the B2, uh, Nothing is Easy by Jethro Tull. You know, that type of stuff where you're like, you're sitting there thinking, like, as a 10-year-old kid, you're thinking, there's no way. How the hell does he do that? 
Right. <laughs> it's like right. an alien like, concept. Yeah. Right. Or like some time ago, Lafayette, like Erato, like stuff like that. Right. But I told, I told him, I said, look, the only thing stopping you from doing whatever the hell you want to do is you. And that's the only thing you ever need to know about anything. So <laughs> it's like, don't ask me any more questions. <laughs> I'm never interviewing anyone ever again. <laughs> <laughs> this episode this episode is the last one i'm retiring <laughs> but it's true right yeah yeah i i, I think mean, we're all sort of i think it's one thing to sort of glean glean insight from people and to hear how they approach things and they can give you different ideas for creativity and things like that but i also and i've said this about the podcast i also think that we use information as a crutch where it's like i need to read one more book i need yeah. to listen to one more interview and then i'll figure it out i need and it becomes this procrastination technique that three years later you're still listening to you know your 87th business book and you know 15 different interviews and you're watching gary vaynerchuk every day and it's like but you haven't done any you've done nothing with all the information no it's great i mean billy corgan's got a Got a great saying. I don't know if he would even remember it, but he he said it to me about somebody else um, many many years ago, and it always stuck with me as just being uh, a just it was right on the money, but b just funny and totally to the point. He said, um, "If it takes you ten fucking years to write a book, you really haven't written a book." <laughs> <laughs> I like it, <laughs> and I've said that to so many people, and some people are like, "What does that mean?" And I'm like, well, I don't know. It's just good. <laughs> I like it. I like it. All, all show, no go, right? Yeah, it's true, right? I mean, people are, it's like walking around in LA. I mean, you know, I know you just moved to LA. You'll, you'll go to the, you know, just go to Starbucks today and see how many people you could find working on their screenplay. Oh my God. We were just talking about this last night. It's like every, every single person is like, and it's always like, this loose connection, you know? So it's like, so this guy's going to read it and his yeah. brother worked on, you know, worked on this movie. It's not him. It's his, it's his roommate's cousin who said yeah. that he's going to actually like take a look oh, at yeah. my screenplay. And I'm like, that guy's the, yeah. that guy's the driver for the lot. <laughs> yeah. He's the brother of the lady that cleaned the helicopter <laughs> pilot for Omni Stone. <laughs> yeah. Their dog. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, that's how that shit happens sometimes in Hollywood. And there's enough of those dumb stories going around to just infect the consciousness of the, everybody else, the punters, you know. Yeah. That's yeah, a whole, course. like, uh, Rock Hudson was just jerking sodas, you know, that whole deal. Mm -hmm. got yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about 2019. What do you guys have going on? You guys are, it looks like you guys are going to Europe for a little while. Yeah, we're going to Europe, play some festivals, uh, which would be super fun. Um we got some stuff coming up in North America that we're working on right now. Um, we're going to record some new music, uh, March, April. Uh, so I'm excited about that. Um, so yeah, just, it's all good, man. It's all musical. It's all good. It's all fun. Um, like I said before, you know, everybody in the band is in alignment. Everybody's got kids and everybody's being, everybody's reasonable, uh, right. including me. Um, <laughs> and, and, we're all, and through that, through the, through the, through the gift of reason, um, we're able to be committed, committed, uh, to a strategy, um, that's been great. So, uh, you know, I haven't, I, I can't remember ever feeling this good and positive about, you know, what's to come, awesome. uh, but just, but also just being in the moment. Like when I come down here to my studio every day now, I'm like, 
man, this is exciting because I know like <clears throat> stuff that's pouring out of me right now, it's going to land somewhere cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you still doing, I know before you were doing like a lot of sort of the, I don't want to say the, or you were doing a lot of the strategy for the tour and all that kind of stuff. Are you not doing any of that? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm involved if somebody asked me my opinion, um, right. but I think a lot of people have learned not to do that. Cause as you know, <laughs> I'd like to talk and I have big ideas about everything, but, right. uh, <clears throat> but no, I've, I've become just a team player and, mm-hmm. and, you know, not really, uh, <clears throat> Not real. I mean, we have great management in place. I mean, they right. knocked it out of the park on this on this uh, shiny no so bright tour. I've never felt more comfortable or more confident in our entire team um, <clears throat> than I have right now, and that really just affords me the the luxury of just being a drummer and really not mm-hmm. worrying about any of that other BS. And I think that's. I'll just speak for myself, but I have a feeling that that's the way everybody feels. Like Billy and I feel like we can really concentrate on whatever the task is at hand and not have to worry about micromanaging these other 40 details that we used to, or he used to, or I used to have to deal with uh, on a constant basis. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, this is a very stupid question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So I remember, so I listen, you know, I've been, I've listened to fish pretty much my whole life. And I remember when they stopped playing, I, I was a friend of mine and I were having this conversation. We were like, it's gotta be an amazing feeling to know that, that they can say tomorrow we're going to play wherever we want to play and they'll sell it out. And yeah. <laughs> so with you guys coming back, like what, what does it feel like what you were talking about feeling? What does it feel like to know that, okay, we can, what, what, before you guys started this last tour uh, to just say, we're, we know that we're going to book a tour. We can play anywhere we want and we're going to sell it out. It's incredible. I mean, it's, it's something that is incredibly that I'm incredibly grateful for. Um, but it's also, you know, there's something novelly, something really remarkable about it as well. And that like when I play by myself, no matter what I'm playing, you know, three, 400 people show up. (laughs) <laughs> Billy play when Billy plays a lot more show up, but not quite as much as when we all play together and let twenty thousand people show up. <laughs> right. We're like, damn man. I mean it just there's something about this band and there's something about the unification of the components of this band that creates something incredibly powerful that none of us possess on our own. Right. Um and and that you know, that is when you know you're like you're really, you're really, um, you know, engaging in some serious voodoo. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty amazing to have, you know, come back to Chicago and play two sold out nights at the United center to go and play two sold out nights at the forum to play, you know, MSG and just to knock it out of the park and to see so many people who over the years have been touched and transformed by this music. You know, it goes back to Rick Rubin. Rick's like, Dude, people like you, man. Like, <laughs> you guys have already won. <laughs> yeah, just keep doing what and you're doing. And it, like even Billy and I were like, dude, people like us, man. They're buying our <laughs> t-shirts and stuff. Because I mean, again, you know, as in, to be a musician is to be insecure, right? Right. I mean, at some level. Um, but it's it's you've got to engage in some type of mechanism to dispel that insecurity so you can get in a position of celebrating your uniqueness and provide right. those gifts back to the world. I mean, we've sure. all been given a gift of being able to navigate uh, an instrument 
you know, the, 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 the reciprocation is to go out and be yourself on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was just thinking of you like walking through Walmart and somebody having like a smashing pumpkins t-shirt or something. And you're kind of like, like, I don't know. I would, if I were you, I would just, I would have to mess with them or something. I'm like, like, that band band sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you listen to those guys. They're horrible. (laughs) How much did you pay for that shirt? (laughs) So uh, 2019, I recommend every, if you're in Europe, definitely check out the dates and then North America dates will be will be announced soon. Oh, Hopefully you guys playing. are coming to LA. Yeah, What's that's that? a, not to interrupt, but we're playing with Tool in Europe as well. So oh. I mean, I'm going to be hanging with Danny. Who he is, just played know, last night at the Baked Potato. Oh, he's one of he's a dear friend of mine and just a <sighs> huge supporter of my uh, my uh, drumming career and likewise me to him. So I'm I'm so stoked to be going out with Tool. I mean, we played with Tool in like 90, 91, 90. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, Yeah. So I've known those guys for a long time and just couldn't be more thrilled to go out with those guys. That's So that's just the Europe tour, right? It's just some festivals we're we're, we're on together. So it should be super fun. Well, I'm bringing my double pedal, man. Yeah, there you go. Can't leave home without it when you're playing with Danny Carey. Did you always use three hi hats? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> so, well, uh, Jimmy, I want to one thank you for coming back on. I appreciate it, uh, and all the you know you've been more than generous with your time on numerous occasions outside of the podcast. So I appreciate you for that. Two, congratulations on the success that you guys have had. I'm looking forward to coming out to see you guys when you guys are on your North American tour. Yeah, and safe travels out there, and just. You know, keep making good music. The same to you, man. And keep doing what you're doing. I really enjoy the podcast. And don't forget, man, if you hear that Corvette outside, you better lock those doors, man. (laughs) I will. I will. All right. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Talk to you in a bit. There you have it. Jimmy Chamberlain from Smashing Pumpkins. Some amazing insights. I hope that you dug that. I hope that maybe you will go back and listen to this a second time or a third time because there's a lot of key takeaways that he talks about, especially about how we are, one, all a work in progress. Two, we all sort of deal with like these self-doubts and like limiting beliefs. And three, we need to be present in the moment. We need to be appreciating what we have and not necessarily worried about the things behind us or the things in front of us and the fact that jimmy talks about how he's evolving and and how he's constantly trying to get better and trying to work on the craft is inspiring for all of us considering the things that he's accomplished in his life so i really hope you enjoyed it as much as i enjoyed having that conversation with him you can find the show notes go to drummersresource.com forward slash session four six one And until the next episode, thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace.